Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. I just want to personally thank you for taking the time to be a part of our church's gathering, even if only via this podcast. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church, and my hope as we open scripture is that today your understanding and experience of Jesus' gracious love would grow. God bless you. Okay, so Advent series, we're back in it, um, but today I asked Dave Van Hook to share this series with me. Dave had more experience dabbling in the dark arts of the Advent than I did because he grew up Lutheran, and I'm sure he'll mention that to you, or at least with an exposure to the Lutheran church. So Dave Van Hook is going to share with you today. Why don't you welcome him? The dark arts. Oh, boy. Good morning. How can it be the dark arts? It's candles, right? That's whole, the that's whole part of it. Morning, guys. I'm uh, delighted and honored to be here talking with you all again. Um, a lot of movies are made in trilogies, so maybe this is my last time. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with a, with a reading uh, from the book of Philippians, um, and then we'll get into it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Joy. Right, So um, thank you to the worship team for putting together all those songs uh, to prepare our hearts for joy. One of the songs reminded me of a quick, terrible joke that I'll share with you. What is a, an accountant's favorite Christmas song? In Excel Sheets Deo. <laughs> Boom. Done. In Excel Sheets Deo. Boy. Um, We've got our candles here, and the third is lit. We've got hope, we've got peace, we've got joy. Next week, we've got love. These are the four celebrations of Advent. Hope has brought us, uh, hope brought us to peace, and now peace allows us to lead into joy. Um, so far in the last two Sundays, we've observed the world's devoidness of these values, of, of in those cases, uh, peace and hope. We recognize that the world does not have these inherently intrinsically as part of them. We remember Jesus' first arrival and how his first arrival ushered in um, an experience of those values, at least in part. And then we looked ahead and we longed for how Jesus and his second arrival will bring these things to us in full. But I think joy is unique. Um, In a certain sense, we can experience joy in the here and now that is in some ways like the joy that we'll experience in heaven. Um, joy from the Holy Spirit is perfect, but to borrow a phrase from, I think it's the preamble to the Constitution, it'll be more perfect in heaven than the hereafter. Before we get into joy a little bit more, I do want to uh, discuss the the dark arts of of Advent. Um, uh, Just a quick word on the formal observance of Advent. As Trevor correctly noted, I I grew up going to um, a smorgasbord of churches. There was an Episcopal church, Lutheran church, Presbyterian church, Methodist church, Evangelical Free Church, then a long period of no church. That was my that was my dark arts period, and then I landed back in church at a non-denominational one. But those first those those four first four churches that I went to, they were liturgical churches, which means that they followed a liturgy, and part of the liturgy was celebrating Advent every Christmas season. 
And I got to say that the, the practice of lighting the candles, we lit them at home on our, on our dining room table. We had a wreath with candles. And then at the church, we would light these candles. And it really did kind of help to, to prepare hearts and prepare minds for Christmas. Um, so I appreciated it. I appreciated the, the liturgy of uh, the scriptures for the day and the songs, um, the hymns in that case of the day, matching with the theme of the candle that's lit. And my daughter, Clara, who's here today, is excited to light tonight's candle because the joy candle is pink. Right there. Um, so let's discuss joy. Let's discuss the pink candle. We're going to start with another passage uh, of Scripture. Jim read, read this to us last week, but I thought it was uh, prudent that we go ahead and go over this again. So uh, let's go to Luke 2, if you would. So Luke 2, 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So looking back there, we see the angel saying, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. The good news is for all people. But packaged in that good news, the good news is, is um, boy, I'm blanking on my grammar here now, but of great joy is the clause that's, that's built in there. The good news is of great joy. So the, great, the good news is available to all people, but you got to open the good news to find out about the joy, right? So the good news is for all people, but the joy is for those who, who look to the good news, who get into the good news. And at the end, we see... Um, that's okay. Uh, at the end, we have on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the peace is not, as I think it's the King James just says, peace on earth. Um, and it's sort of, sort of it sounds like a blanket statement, but, but the, the uh, more accurate reading here is on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we have good news for all people, but the joy and the peace is for those with whom God is pleased. The joy and the peace is for those who actually dig into this and become believers in the truth. But at Christmas, I think there is sort of this false expectation that suddenly the world is going to be, um, you know, candy canes and lollipops. Um, we think that because we go to parties and we eat decadent food and we spend time with family and we take time off of work and we give gifts and we get gifts um, because of the rituals and the trappings, that somehow for, for those reasons, this time of year should be different than, than some other times of year. But I question that. If you think about, for example, um, someone working at the corner store who's not a believer, and they, they have to work on Black Friday, and they have to work on Christmas Eve, and maybe they have to work on Christmas Day, and maybe they're struggling to pay the bills, and maybe they have a sick parent, why would they become suddenly more chipper because they've got a tree in their living room, and there's songs playing over the loudspeaker about this baby born 2,000 years ago out of wedlock in ancient Palestine? That, you know, that doesn't ring cheerful or, or anything unless it's actually true, unless the truth of Scripture, unless the, uh, unless the truth of, of Christmas is what they're celebrating. I remember a couple Decembers ago, back when the malls were um, busier, I mean, they've gotten busy again, but 
I, I was in the mall searching for something at Christmas time, and I remember just stopping and pausing and looking at all the faces of the people that were hurrying around to, to grab their um, their shopping spoils, navigating the the you know walkways, and and everything was decked out in red and green, and there were these billboards. The Westfield malls always have these giant billboards that are they are digital, and they'll cycle through pictures of like fashion people on Instagram and these uh, hashtags going through. And it's just everything that this mall was screaming, this is what you need. This is going to make your life full. This is going to fulfill what you're longing for. And I, I stood there, you know, looking at all the people hurrying by, and I, and I knew these are just aching souls who were looking for truth. They were looking for meaning. They were looking for things to fill the void in their own hearts. Or perhaps they thought that this gift they were going to buy for somebody else might fill the void in their heart. And I just wanted to speak into their hearts to encourage them about the truth of Christmas. And I think that that's what we find in the Advent season. And so, yes, we do observe a world that is devoid of true joy as well. And then we look back to what Jesus did and and what he's going to do to explore the multifaceted joy that is secured for us by Christ and offered to us by the Father through the Holy Spirit. So um, let's look at joy uh, the way that Paul describes it. And where better to start than Philippians? Philippians was written by Paul while he was in prison, but despite that fact, you've got the word joy appearing, I think it's five times, and rejoice appearing seven times. Um, And it's just a little four-chapter book. But here and elsewhere, we find that Paul uh, writes about joy in, in kind of two facets. There's, there's the obvious version of joy, and then there's this other sort of nuanced one that I want to talk over. First is the, the joy uh, from his experience, um, the joy that Paul gets from his experiences now and the experiences that he knows he'll have in the future. But there's this other joy that is exclusive of self, joy that Paul has in spite of himself, joy that Paul experiences um, no matter what his circumstances are, because the joy is from something else. So we'll, we'll get into that. But let's start with the joy that Paul got from his own experiences. The first is the joy that Paul experienced from knowing God's faithfulness. And I think we can all experience this as well. God was faithful to Paul to, um, uh, as he put it, to finish the good work that he had began in him. So we see Paul going through trial after trial. We see him bitten by a snake. We see him shipwrecked. We see him stoned where they thought he was dead, and they dragged him out of the city, and it turns out he wasn't. Paul saw the faithfulness of God to keep him alive and to keep him on the course that God had had put him on. So Paul experienced God's faithfulness, and that brought him joy to continue on his mission. God was faithful to his word and his direct promises that he had made to Paul. Paul could trust God's faithfulness in the future. So we see joy as a fruit of hope. We see joy as a fruit of peace. So much so that Paul was able to describe the nature of his present afflictions, as he put it in the second letter to the church in Corinth, as being momentary and light. So when we stub our toes, we think the world is going to end. But when Paul gets shipwrecked, he's like, hey, I'm joyful, man. This is okay. Momentary light affliction. The joy was, was related to his present state, but it wasn't necessarily because of it. <clears throat> um, if we could go to Romans 8, 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. James experienced and encouraged the same thing in James 
chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, James said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you put up a Christmas tree and get presents. No, he doesn't say that. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, James says. Back to Paul. Paul had joy knowing that his citizenship was not here. His citizenship was in heaven. And if you remember, Paul used his citizenship a lot. He talked about being a citizen, uh, a Roman citizen, and that helped him out sometimes. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so his citizenship as a Jew was helpful to him at other times as well. But ultimately, Paul was a citizen of heaven, and that truly... um, was sustaining to him. I'll tell you a quick story about uh, a stupid American citizen in Paris. I'm the stupid American citizen. About 15 or 20 years ago, when I was still a heathen, um, I went to Europe with some college buddies, and there was one night that we were in Paris. We made a series of bad choices that landed us at about 2 a.m. at a bar that whose location we didn't know. Um, and we didn't know where our hostel was located either, and we thought, we'll just hop on the subway. We know where, where to go once we get on the subway. Well, in Paris, the subway is closed at 2 a.m. We didn't know that. <clears throat> so um, here we were, subway closed, too far to walk, uh, cab drivers who didn't speak English. Um, I was with stubborn friends who every time we passed another bar, they wanted to go in for one more drink, and in one bar in particular, the The bartender claimed that the guys didn't pay, and so the locals were digging into my friend's pockets, and they almost started a brawl. And I'm just thinking, I want to get out of here. Like, I wish I was back in America. I wish I was back where where I'm a citizen. But my citizenship as an American couldn't help me out in this circumstance. We finally found a cab driver that would get us there. We got to our hostel. Um, uh, We gave him the the cab fare that was on the meter. He extorted us and asked for us for a bunch more, so we just threw coins at him, and in Europe, that could have been a lot of money. Um, And then I thought that was it, and we went to bed. And I went to bed in my room, but when I woke up, I was sitting in a chair in a different room. I had sleepwalked to somebody else's room in this hostel, and I woke up with strangers sitting up in their bed, and they're like, who are you? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) And I I mean, it could have been really bad. I, I, I left the room. I found out I was on a completely different floor. I made it back to my room. I banged on the door until the, the innkeeper on the first floor came up and he let me in the room with some choice French words on his lips. But the whole time I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is, how am I going to survive this? This is crazy. I, I don't belong here. This is not where I should be. My citizenship as an American doesn't help me out here. For Paul, his heavenly citizenship helped him a ton. This is why Paul was able to say... <clears throat> that uh, to live is Christ, but to die was gain. Paul knew that no matter what he went through, even if it brought him to death, that was okay. It was gain for him because his citizenship meant that his death was going to be gain. His citizenship was not here on earth, it was in heaven. And this brought Paul joy. Paul's needs were met constantly. Not his material needs necessarily, but that's not what he focused on. He took Jesus' words seriously from the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Paul sought the kingdom over and over, constantly, and all these things were added to him. We'll go to Philippians again, chapter 4. 
Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every and every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That last verse, sometimes it gets plucked out of context a little bit and applied to some interesting circumstances. But for Paul, what he's saying is, I might be in need. I'm not promised that I'm not going to be in need. I'm not promised that I'm going to have abundance. But that's, that's um, irrelevant because my strength doesn't come from those things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then Paul describes, um, he uses a, a particular analogy or a particular picture to describe his needs being met. And I'll just uh, read passages from three of his different letters, starting with 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul had his eye on the prize. Again, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Luke records Paul saying this, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So for Paul, the point of his life was not to live his best life now. The point of his life was to run the race. We'll finish here with 2 Timothy um, uh, chapter 4. This is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. He was able to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. <clears throat> Paul was so satisfied with his prize, the prize that was awaiting him, he wasn't holding it in his hand at that point. But knowing that the prize was coming brought him joy, that he was able to sit back and, and glean from the joy of those around him. He was able to experience joy by watching God get glory, watching people repent, watching people get saved, get baptized, and become fellow workers with him. And that leads us into the second facet of joy, which I think is a little bit more interesting because we don't necessarily pick up on it right away. And that's the joy that comes exclusive of self, joy that really has nothing to do with Paul's circumstances. Think about this. When you're watching a movie or reading a book and you're really into it, you start... Um, uh, cheering for the hero, you start kind of empathizing with the hero. You really want to see the victory that the hero might get out of this. Um, it could be from a book or a movie. You could be home, um, uh, you know, sick, uh, and, and you could pick up a book or a movie to try and pass the time, and you can get so engrossed in the story that you almost forget about your own illness, the, the things that are plaguing you at that moment. You're, you're looking for the hero to save the damsel in distress. For Paul... God was the hero. The church was the damsel in distress. And for Paul, that's what he was watching all the time. He was watching this story play out of good versus evil. And he was cheering for the victory of the hero. And he was cheering for the saving of the damsel in distress. And when those things happened, Paul cheered for the victory. It had nothing to do with what, what was happening with Paul. It had, you know, if you're laying on your couch and you're watching Princess Bride, I never got really into that movie. A lot of people, I think, in my generation did, but I don't know. It's, it skipped it for me. But I know people love it, so I'll use it as an example. 
A lot of kids, they're homesick. You know, that's the whole story is this kid is getting the story read to him from his grandpa. And, uh, and you forget about your present circumstances because you're so excited seeing the victory play out on the page or, or on the stage or on the screen. This was, this was Paul experiencing joy in seeing God's glory achieved in all things. God's glory, not Paul's glory. It was, this joy was in spite of himself. Um, Paul makes this clear when he opens Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment, remember he wrote this from prison, my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, listen to this, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul was aware of his imprisonment, but only insofar as it, it led these other men to be bold for the faith and to speak out the truth of Christ. Paul was willing to be in prison to see the truth of Christ proclaimed and to see other guys get bold and, and start doing what Paul was doing. Prison was worth it for him. That means something. Again, a couple chapters later, Philippians chapter 4, the first verse, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So not only does Paul get joy from these guys, he calls them his joy. The salvation of these men and women and then the work that they were doing was Paul's joy. He was so far outside of himself that he was looking at other people to see the joy that they were experiencing and he was, and he was getting uh, gladness from that. What a joy to see others in whom you've invested getting saved, living in the freedom of Christ, and proclaiming Jesus to the lost. Here's the last little passage where I think it, it, it shows just how little Paul thought about his own well-being. It's from Romans chapter 9. And this is it's an interesting little passage. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about his fellow Israelites. Paul was being careful not to speak against the will of God, but he was going as far as he could to basically say, if I could take your place, my Jewish brothers and sisters, and give you my salvation, I would do it. Now, we can all get macho and we can say, I'd take a bullet for someone. But Paul is saying, I'll go a step further. I'll give someone my salvation. I'll take their eternal damnation if I can. And he knows that he can't. He knows that that's not God's will. But he's... What he's saying here is, is hyperbolic to drive the point home that Paul cared so deeply for the salvation of other people that it did not matter what happened to him as long as it advanced the gospel. I think this speaks to the fact that this, this was not an occasional mindset for Paul. This is his 24-7 paradigm. This is the way that he lived his life. Um, <laughs> Paul could not in good conscience have gone to Hobby Lobby and picked up a sign that says Jeremiah 29, 11, and hung it on his wall and think that that applied to his life. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. That's not what Paul experienced. Paul experienced God's plan, including bodily harm and loneliness and hardship and heresy hunting and shipwreck and all these things. 
But for Paul, that was hope in a future because he could see through those things to what God was doing through Paul, regardless of what was happening to Paul. A final exposition of, of joy in Philippians um, comes courtesy of a writer named Warren W. Wearsby. He wrote a book called Be Joyful. And he points out that the four chapters of Philippians map out four different ways that Paul maintained joy through his life. A, Paul had a single mind, a submissive mind, a spiritual mind, and a secure mind. So single-mindedness in chapter one, we've covered this a little bit, where for Paul to live was Christ, period. His life was about Christ. He had a single mind focused on that goal, on that prize of running the race. Paul had in chapter two a submissive mind. So Paul was the author of Ephesians, and he implored spouses to submit to one another out of reverence. And, uh, and this was the mindset that he had of, of submission. Paul considered others, as it says in Philippians 2, Paul considered others more important than himself. Right, Max? Right, Clara? We consider others more important than ourselves? We're working on that. Me too. Uh, a spiritual mind, chapter 3. So a mind not set on earthly things, a mind set on the hereafter, on the above, on spiritual things. Uh, Jim Elliott is a missionary, a name that you might all know. He echoed the sentiments of Christ when Eliot said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So Jim Elliot was killed by the people that he was evangelizing to in Ecuador. He, who is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And for Paul, Paul said, Whatever is true, noble, right, Lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about these things. That's a spiritual mind. And chapter four, Paul has a secure mind. Paul had God's peace, God's power, God's provision. God's provision for Paul was not a healthy body or a five-year job contract or things that didn't have a lasting impact. Paul, Paul had God's provision in a deeper sense. Therefore, he was anxious about nothing. He petitioned God for everything, yes, but he did it with thanksgiving for what God had already done. And so I think most importantly there, we, what we see is that Paul had a full assurance of salvation. It was part of the heavenly citizenship package that we talked about earlier. <clears throat> and so that leads me to sort of part three of my talk here today, which is the joy that's available through the Holy Spirit. We know scripturally that the Holy Spirit is the true source of true joy. We can have fleeting happiness. We can have, you know, this or that that might bring us um, um, enjoyment. But the Holy Spirit is the source of true joy. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So receiving the word in affliction these people at the church in Thessalonica, they received the word in the midst of affliction, they became imitators of Christ, and therefore they had joy from the Holy Spirit. So there is the normal working of the Holy Spirit in the believer. We know that that is one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. And I'm going to go ahead and move into um, what is a little bit of interesting territory for me. Um, in my previous talks, I've talked about Martin Lloyd-Jones um, he's a Welsh Protestant minister from uh, the mid-20th century. 
he's been dead for almost 30, 40 years now, um, but I consider him one of my spiritual fathers because all of his sermons are available uh, online and, and then compiled in books like this. For almost 30 years, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, was the head of the Westminster Chapel in London. That was ever after having a successful uh, practice as a medical physician, and he ultimately decided to leave that field because he saw that um, helping people's souls was more important than helping their bodies. And, uh, and he saw many revivals happen in the church. He spent months, maybe longer, um, on a sermon series presenting a biblical case for there being two exposures or experiences with the Holy Spirit that a believer can have, two types of, of experiences. And before I jump into it, I'll be, I'll be honest with you guys that the, the, the person in the work of the Holy Spirit is something that I'm still struggling with, I'm still wrestling through, to try and figure out exactly what it looks like for a believer to have the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what that quite means. I think there's a lot of dangerous stuff out there that has maybe made me a little bit gun-shy to these things. Um, Hyper-charismatic movements, word of faith, this thing called uh, New Apostolic Reformation, they, they, they unsettle me. They, they strike me as something being off. And, and so I'm still trying to figure this out myself. But the reason I'm bringing that up and being honest with you is because when you, when you hear about something from a teacher that you trust and, and who you believe has a strong command of Scripture, and that's how I feel about Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, then you can, you can give them the time of day and you can see what they have to say on the subject. And so for, for MLJ, we'll call him, uh, as many do, um, he saw that there was a biblical case to be made that you can, be, you can have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, but then subsequent to that, you can also have a filling of the Holy Spirit. So let's just explore that together. The first encounter with the Holy Spirit, as I said, comes at salvation. It's necessary for belief. Uh, the second half of Romans 8 9, Paul says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. It's plain and clear. We all acknowledge that now here today. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. It seals your salvation. So then the Spirit can perform this regular work in us, which includes the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But fruit... It's a, it's a growing thing. It's a thing that gets cultivated. So the fruit of the Spirit is, is slow and maturing and, and it's working regularly in us. It's more or less the, I guess the, the church term for it would be sanctification, right? So we're being sanctified over time and we're growing in maturity. It's slow and steady and joy can come that way through the regular work of the Holy Spirit. MLJ said it this way, regeneration is something unconscious. It's not uh, derived from experience. And the great point is that it is a mysterious act worked in the depths and the vitals of the soul. You later begin to discover the fact that you have been made regenerate and you see evidence of it in your life. So he's talking about you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit over time maturing in you. But then he makes the case that there is a second encounter with the Holy Spirit that a believer can have, not necessarily will have, and it's, and it's not required for salvation. It's a baptism of the Spirit that a believer can experience after salvation, and possibly more than once, which he argues led to Peter's, quote, unspeakable joy, or joy unspeakable. And we'll look at that here, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Here's where that phrase comes from. 
Peter says, in this you rejoice, now though for a little while, it goes on, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Paul also captures this here, um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul said, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles in, uh, among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Martin Lloyd-Jones looked at that verse and he correctly points out that this can't be a description of the, the moment of salvation because the moment of salvation it can have miracles working in it, but it doesn't necessarily. It's sort of a quiet acknowledgement that happens in the heart. A working of miracles among us is something that's more, something that's external and visible, and it's a sign for the world. Here's another case that, that MLJ makes. In Acts 19, we have Paul um, coming across some, some disciples in Ephesus. And uh, they were not aware of the quiet regeneration of the Holy Spirit that was already happening inside of them. So I'll read it to you here from chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. So these people were disciples. They were followers of the way. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They haven't been going to church 101. So they, they didn't have the New Testament at that point. They said, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. So at that point, we know that these people were believers in Jesus. And it says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So we know, again, from Romans 8 9, that if they belong to Christ, which we know they do, they were believers and they were disciples, that that means that they had the indwelling Holy Spirit in them. But then we have, you know, chronologically speaking, this moment after that, Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. So baptism with the Holy Spirit, at least in Scripture, is always something that's clear and unmistakable. So in summary, the second experience with the Holy Spirit, being baptized by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit coming on a believer, can and should bring about joy unspeakable. I'm going to give you some examples, and, and I'm going to give them from um, a set of, of people that uh, MLJ quotes in this book here most of whom are Puritans, um, which means that they were, they were cessationists, which essentially just means they didn't believe that, the, that the, the apostolic gifts were for today. But you'll notice what they, how they characterize uh, their own experiences and testimonies here. So we'll get to that in a moment. But just to reiterate, the Spirit's regular work brings quiet peace, it brings love, it brings joy that grows and matures over time. And it's kind of an, an indirect work of the Spirit. We see this. This is always what I've glommed onto because I've always been skeptical of the, the special work of the Holy Spirit. So I say, well, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us through preachers that get up and preach the word. 
So it's not, it's not direct. It's not like staring directly into the sun. It's not blaring. Um, and therefore, it also isn't generally perverted or misunderstood or twisted the way that the baptism on the Holy Spirit oftentimes can be. But for those of us like me who don't think that they've ever been baptized by the Spirit, it's, it may be hard to understand and hard to um, figure out what this necessarily means. And it also might be hard for us to um, have what is generally described as a full assurance of salvation or a joy that is complete and full the way that Paul did. I, I can't imagine myself walking out these doors and living a life like Paul because I think that he had something that I don't. It's not salvation, it's something else, right? So, so the life of the believer, it can, it can move and it can, it can progress. And we look at Paul and we say, what a hero. But I think that that's kind of unfair to us to think that he was just better than us. I think that there's something else here. And so this second type of the Holy Spirit, if, if there are two types of encounters with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit can do exceptional direct work on believers, it can bring about unusual for full assurance of salvation. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we can have this assurance from the Holy Spirit. MLJ said this, he said, The thing that was so obvious about New Testament Christians, as seen in Acts 2 or anywhere else, was their spirit of joy and of happiness and of assurance, their confidence. They were so certain that they were ready to be thrown to the lions in the arena or put to death. And that's what I'm talking about. I don't know if I'm ready to be thrown to lions, but I'd like to be. Not thrown to them, just ready for it. Um, the Protestant Reformation, so if you remember in history, the Protestant Reformation came around to uh, differentiate from the, the Roman Catholic Church that said, in order to be saved, in order to have assurance of salvation, you've got to do this and this and this and this, and you have to do this in your deathbed. The Protestant Reformation made it clear. There's a document where it says, assurance is available to all believers through the work and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. So they differentiated between salvation and assurance of salvation. I just think there's something there. <clears throat> the Spirit's direct work can bring joy, uh, can bring the joy of Christ to completion in us. And I think that's scriptural. Jesus promised in John 15, 11, he said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Full in the Greek there is filled up. It's brought to completion. It's fulfilled. So Christ said that. He said we would have his joy and that joy would be complete. It would be full. So let's look at some examples of, uh, of people who seem to have this fullness of joy and this assurance of salvation that may or may not have come from some sort of experience with the Holy Spirit. Again, I, most of the people that I'm about to read to you from um, were, were Puritans or they were um, at least cessationists or Calvinists or sort of these, these more conservative, conservative strains of Protestantism. But I'll start with John Wesley, who was not necessarily those things. Um, John Wesley may be a, a well-known name to you. He was the leader and or founder of Methodism, uh, and he wrote many of the hymns that we have in, in hymnals today. And here's what he said. Now, I'll, I'll give you the preface here that um, when he said this, he was already an ordained uh, preacher. He was already an ordained pastor. He said, about a quarter before nine, I was with a man reading the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans, and he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. And at that moment, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So he was already he was already a pastor of a flock, and he suddenly came on him was this assurance of salvation. A year later, he went on and he said this, <clears throat> I was with about 60 brethren, and about three in the morning as we were continuing, instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exalting joy, and many fell to the ground. See, this stuff is like weird to me, but this is happening. As soon as we were recovered, a little from the awe and amazement at the presence of, the Holy, of, of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice, we praise Thee, O God, we acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. There's something there. Here's another from an Anglican clergyman. Um, uh, I don't know when this is from, I think the 1800s. A man named Henry Venn. He had a, a remarkable ministry in parts of the UK. He had just lost his wife, and he wrote to a friend, and he said this, Into what deplorable situation would I now be cast had I not known that the Lord was mine, were I not certain that his heart feels even more love for me than I am able to conceive, were not this evident to me, not by deduction or argument, but by consciousness, by his own lighting, by his own light shining in my soul as the sun does upon my bodily eyes. So there it is again. We can't stare directly into the sun. That's not the, the typical experience, the, the quiet, humble life of a believer. But this man is describing it as a light shining in his soul as the sun does upon bodily eyes. And then I'll, I'll skip ahead to this, this man as a Puritan from a couple hundred years ago that I'm about to read to you here. And I think, um, uh, yep, he was a Cambridge theologian. And here's what he said. The Spirit worketh, well, I'll try to not use this old English thing. The Spirit works this joy in the heart of believers immediately by himself. As in sanctification, he is a well, he being the Spirit, he is a well of water springing up in the soul, immediately exerting his efficacy and refreshment. So in assurance, he immediately works the soul and minds of men to a, to a joyful rejoicing and spiritual frame, filling them with exaltation and gladness. He says, of this joy, of this joy, there is no account to be given, but that the Spirit worketh it when and how he will. He secretly infuses and distills it into the soul, prevailing against all fears, fears and sorrows, filling it with gladness, exultations, and sometimes with unspeakable raptures of the mind. What I read to you was actually not, it was from a, a, another Puritan named Dr. John Owen, so I mixed up my authors here. But Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this text note here. He says, now if ever there was a man by nature that was intellectual and a calm and controlled man, it was Dr. John Owen. But this is how he describes it. Unspeakable raptures of the mind, gladness, exaltations, something which is beyond description. Uh, here's the quote from uh, Thomas Goodwin, the one from Cambridge, and, uh, and I think it ties back to the previous one. He said, There is a light that comes and overpowers a man's soul and assures him that God is his and he is God's and that God loves him from everlasting. It is a light beyond the light of ordinary faith. 
So I think we who are all believers have the light of ordinary faith in us, and the Holy Spirit works in us to regenerate us over time and to bring us the fruit of the Spirit slowly but surely. But if Martin Lloyd-Jones is reading Scripture right, and if these men's testimonies, these, these you know, calm, sophisticated, intellectual, uh, philosophical guys, if they were able to say, look, there's, there's this light beyond that light, something that the Holy Spirit can do and stir up in a believer, I think it's worth us at least acknowledging and, and, and trying to wrestle through. So that's, that's what I'm doing right now while I'm reading this book and marking it up, and that's what I encourage you all to do. But uh, I'll conclude with Scripture because this is the writings of a fallible man, and these are the testimonies of fallible people, but the Scripture is living and active. Despite, despite it being the Advent season, a season when it's bleak, uh, for the world, a season when people try to paint over their pain and their suffering and their fears and concerns, um, there is a joy to be beheld. So uh, Psalm 30, we'll finish with here. The writer of the psalm says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the Advent season. However it's celebrated, it is a reminder that we live in the dark, but your light is the light of men. We light candles as a, as a practice. There's no magic in it. There's, no, um, there is, there's nothing uh, effective about it except as a tool and a reminder for us to know that there is a light in the darkness. And you are that light. And we thank you for the joy that that can bring to us to know that you are on the throne, to know that we are citizens of heaven, to know that our joy does not need to be part of what we are experiencing, but that our joy can be like watching this, your story play out, uh, reading the history of your interaction with people and acknowledging your workings today in the life of believers, in converting hearts, and bringing people to repentance and helping people to live in freedom and seeing others start to do to, to become co-laborers with the Lord. May we be co-laborers with you. May we follow the Great Commission to, um, to not only tell people about Jesus, but to make disciples of all the nations because we see from Scripture that there is joy in that. There is joy in pouring into others and watching them grow and flourish. So we ask you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be in us, working through us. And if it is your will, and if, and if, uh, if the Scriptures tell us to expect it, then we pray for a baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we can experience a full assurance of salvation, and that, as Christ said, your joy may be complete in us. But for now, your, your, uh, your grace is sufficient, as Paul said. So we thank you for the sufficiency of your grace. We thank you for the Christmas season. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, and just to close your eyes and extend your hands, but I just want to 
uh, read something that Jesus said. He said, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would he give him an eel instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so, Father, our hearts are open to what you want to do in our lives as your people and as Jesus' followers. And Father, we believe that we are, as your people, as Jesus' followers, we are indwelt by your Spirit, and we're asking for that good gift of your presence in our lives, of your power, of boldness, of peace, of joy, of love like we've received that we would have for others. Jesus, we ask for that good gift that our good Father gives. We ask and are open to your Holy Spirit. And we ask now in this moment, but we ask, Jesus, we commit to ask often that you would baptize us in your Holy Spirit, that you would pour your Spirit into us as a vessel so that there's so much that's received that it just flows out of us and into our world around us. Like the healing waters we see at the end of the book that flow from your throne to heal the earth, may your living water flow out of our lives to touch and heal lives around us and the community that we find ourselves in, the neighborhoods that we live in. Jesus, may your life be lived again through each of us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.